Good afternoon and welcome to Mint Day Magazine for Tuesday, July 18th. I'm Hannah Flohr with KFSK News. Petersburg's Borough Assembly approved an appeal from the local hospital board last night. It will allow them to move forward with their plans to build a new hospital. One of the biggest problems in the history, one of the biggest projects in the history of Petersburg hit a bump in the road last month when the community's planning and zoning commission threw out an application that would have prepared a plot of land for the facilities. By a vote of five to one, the assembly reversed the commission's decision. But as KFSK's Shelby Herbert reports, the community remains divided on the project. Petersburg's Planning and Zoning Commission voted against redesignating a stretch of muskeg on the north end of the community for three reasons. One, Petersburg is in the middle of a housing crisis. The idea is that rezoning single and multifamily lots for the new hospital could take away opportunities to build badly needed shelter. Assemblymember Dave Kensinger chairs the borough's housing task force. He says if the borough lacks anything... It's not developable land. There's about 343 properties that are currently platted. All they are is lines on a map. The one thing that we do not lack in town is land. We have lots of land. We're fortunate in that. The second reason? Lack of public education on the project. And that's tied to the third reason. Lack of public input. Phil Hofstetter is the CEO of Petersburg's Medical Center, and he chafes at those. He says he's been working on public engagement for at least the last five years. The Medical Center published its plans on its website and in the local paper. And Hofstetter himself personally reported on the progress of the project at nearly every assembly meeting since the plan's inception. He's also put on open houses with the architects and community cafes. We are a community hospital, and so the effort at right out of the gate has been to provide education, information through some of these community cafes, through these community conversations. But a lot of community feedback departs from the reasons the Planning Commission gave for rejecting the application. Many of the hospital's potential neighbors have gone public with their distress over the idea of living next to the commotion of construction and then a busy hospital. Diane Marsh is one of them. She's the mother-in-law of Borough Assemblymember Donna Marsh, who is the only member staunchly opposed to the project. The new hospital would be smack dab against Diane's property line. At the community planning meeting in June, she said she's worried about how the presence of the new hospital would disrupt her peace at home. My living room windows, I don't keep curtains on them. I don't want people walking around my house looking in my windows. The cars for the parking lot are going to be driving right by my house. Lights are going to be shining in my bedroom window. I'm just opposed to where it's planned. I, maybe we need a new hospital, yes, but not right there. Other locals are worried about what they perceive to be a huge financial risk to the community, like Harold Medallin, whose property line is also bordering the plot of land staked out for the hospital. This is on you guys. If we build this expensive $100 million facility and it falls flat, that's the choice of you few people up here. But uh, I think it should go to the voters. Just because we're going to get free money from somewhere else to pay for this whole thing, Free money can be just as badly invested as our own money. Hofstetter has repeatedly assured the Assembly that the project would be funded by grants and the community wouldn't be left holding the bag if those fall through. The current estimate for the project is $85 million. 
25 million shorter than the quote for renovating the current facilities. But Assemblymember Donna Marsh isn't convinced. She's concerned about the lifetime cost of staffing and maintaining the new facility, which would be more than 20,000 square feet bigger than the hospital Petersburg has now. I think this is far beyond the scope of what Petersburg can handle. Um, we don't have funding to construct it. We've got some promises. We've got some maybes, but we don't have anything in. In five, ten years, this is going to be an aging facility. But there are still others in the community who believe in the project, even if their personal interests are at odds. I caught Lizzie Thompson painting her porch. Hey there, how's it going? Hi. I am so sorry to <laughs> disturb you. Your collar looks beautiful. Her property overlooks the area where the hospital is set to go up. She says she feels a little conflicted. None of her neighbors want to see the view of their beautiful muskeg disappear, and they'll miss having access to ski trails that cross into the woods. But for Thompson, having a functional hospital is more important than any inconvenience it could create. Um, my oncologist wanted me to do chemotherapy in Seattle, traveling down for mm -hmm. every infusion. And I was able to do it here. And I can't imagine having to travel to Seattle for every infusion under the best of circumstances, but during a pandemic, it would have been horrible. It's way more than a first aid station. We have some really wonderful um, medical professionals in this town and they deserve to have a really wonderful facility. PMC's current facilities are falling behind code. Hofstetter says if things stay the way they are, the hospital will have to start cutting services, starting with home health, mental health, and preventative care. But the borough assembly was convinced of PMC's case for preparing the lot for construction, and the hospital plan will move forward for now. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. Nearly 700 sites along Tonga's national forest streams could obstruct fish from migrating. That's according to a new report from the U.S. Forest Service. As Angela Denning reports, there's a plan to deal with the old roads and culverts causing the problems. Restoring forest land from old logging projects has been a tough lesson to learn. Back in the 50s and 60s, timber was harvested throughout southeast Alaska without plans for how all the construction like roads, culverts, and bridges, would affect fish habitats as they deteriorate in the years to come. And that deterioration has proved to be a big problem for fish. Fish migrate, so we need to ensure that they have that opportunity. Sheila Jacobson is a fisheries program manager for the U.S. Forest Service. She is leading a new project that seeks to restore all 700 of the crossings on the Tongass that aren't up to the current federal standards. She says migrating fish, including salmon, steelhead, and trout, swim into human-caused barriers left over from those days of heavy logging. This project really is aimed at restoring fish passage across roads and motorized trails, which are fragmenting fish habitat across the entire forest. The federal agency has been documenting these stream crossings since the early 1990s. The Forest Service has tried to restore them one by one as funding allows. 
Now they've compiled all of them into one project, the Tongass National Forest Fish Passage Restoration, which can be added to as more crossings are identified. Jacobson says it should make for a more streamlined process. This sets us up well for being able to capitalize on some of the new funding streams that have been coming up in the past year or so. And then partners are able to help us with grant opportunities as well. So we are definitely being able to get more project funding for this particular issue. The Forest Service isn't the only one restoring streams on the Tongass. The agency has several partnerships, including the Huna Native Forest Partnership. Ian Johnson runs the Environmental Department for the Tribe, Huna Indian Association. For the past five years, they've run programs that have local workers restoring watersheds in the area. Huna is on the northeast side of Chichikoff Island. Johnson says streams there have been affected by past logging. When fish are passing through a culvert, you know, if there's a meter perch or something on the backside, people can see that. Johnson says around six years ago, the tribe surveyed the community about environmental issues and stream restoration was ranked number one. He says some community members had worked for the logging industry in the past. There were a lot of folks here who were a part of the logging and you know, experienced the logging and um, those that, that had concern at the time about the effect of logging right up to the stream edge. Now, workers with Huna Native Forest Partnership fix culverts and bridges and reintroduce wood into watersheds that lost that natural process through logging. Johnson says healthy streams are important, especially for communities that rely on the land around them. Huna, as a community that relies on subsistence resources, meet many of its needs, especially around protein, need to have a landscape that can provide those resources. The Forest Service wants to grow partnerships like the one with Huna. Fixing 700 stream crossings is a lot. It's a plan that spans nearly the whole southeast region, except for Prince of Wales Island. That island has 2,000 miles of mostly logging roads and has its own restoration plan. Many of the bad logging practices started changing in 1976 with the passage of the National Forest Management Act. It regulated the timber industry, limiting the size of clear cuts and how far away from streams they could be. Reporting for Coast Alaska in Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. A mysterious flaming object crossed the sky of the northern Lynn Canal on the evening of July 8th. The event was caught on camera and posted on social media. As Alain de Premenil reports from Haines, it could have been an old satellite re-entering the atmosphere. Maggie Martin was walking with her sister by the beach in Haines. Their walk ended with a surprise never seen anything like that. As they looked up, the sisters saw something in the sky. It looked like a cloud trail, but like there was no clouds in the sky. And so it just looked like like a little ball of fire just slowly going across Rapinski and disappeared. And the smoke lingered for a little while and it was pretty black smoke. Martin posted a short video of the mysterious event to a popular community Facebook page. The video shows a burning object cutting through the sky. The caption reads, What is this? and indicates the time of the observation as 10.22 p.m. The Aerospace Corporation provided a likely answer on its website. The organization tracks space debris that could damage spacecraft. 
It lists a satellite called Cosmos 1356 that re-entered the atmosphere on the day the flaming object was caught on camera. A map on the website shows the trajectory of the satellite passing over the Northern Lynn Canal. The satellite had spent more than 40 years circling the Earth. Cosmos 1356 was launched in 1982 from the Plesetsk Cosmodrome, about 500 miles north of Moscow, in what was then the Soviet Union. On NASA's website, Cosmos 1356 is described as a 5,000-pound electronic intelligence satellite. This means it gathered electronic signals not directly related to communications. The Aerospace Corporation's website says satellites usually re-enter the atmosphere at more than 4 miles per second. Friction with the atmosphere heats the devices until they burst into flame. The object then appears to be traveling parallel to the ground and the spectacle can last from 20 to 90 seconds. A request for comments from NASA went unanswered. For KHNS, I'm Alan DePermanil. Alaska's wildfire season remains on track to be the slowest on record. Alaska Bureau of Land Management Fire Service spokesperson Beth Ibsen cautions that the season is not over, but based on this summer's weather trend, Alaska is likely to set a record for fewest acres burned. We've had 150 fires burn around 1,500 acres, which, if we continue at this rate, will be the lowest amount of acres burned since we started keeping statistics in 1940. In earlier decades, acreage assessment was not as accurate as it is today. But Ibsen says, according to records, Alaska's lowest season total is a little over 3,000 acres burned in 1964. She says this year's low number is the result of generally cooler, wetter weather and minimal lightning. Lightning strikes that could cause the fires that we would see in a typical fire season. And then, of course, we haven't had that prolonged heat spell or, you know, dry weather that um, would make the, the vegetation, the fuels available for, for burning, too. So the combination of that's really kept things very subdued. Ibsen adds that the small number of fires has also enabled larger responses to each start. We've been able to send a lot of resources on to these fires right away, get on them and get them contained While Alaska's fire season has been record slow, Canada is experiencing just the opposite, with nearly 23 million acres burned so far across the country. Ibsen says Alaska's state and federal response agencies have sent personnel to help out in Canada, including four fire crews. Pioneer Peak with the state, both of AFS's hotshot crews and even the Forest Service put together a crew from Tongass National Forest and Chugach National Forest. Ibsen says the Alaskans deployed to Canada have worked alongside firefighters from around the world, including South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and South Korea. Ibsen notes that this year's fire season in the lower 48 has been slow to start, but if and when it does, some Alaska-based firefighters will also likely be available to deploy there. For KFSK News, I'm Hannah Floor.